Depending on whose numbers you use, and where you choose to place your chronological brackets, the Chalcolithic, or Copper Age, began around 5000 BCE, around 7000 years ago, with the smelting of copper at high temperatures. The oldest confirmed and dated site relevant to the beginning of this age is in Serbia, though this capability seems to have been developed independently at various places around the world within a few thousand years of each other, including China, in North America, in the Great Lakes region, and in what is today Pakistan as well, among other locations. The process of smelting copper that was practiced in Eurasia, in what we might today call Central or Eastern Europe or Western Asia, slowly moved the continent out of the Neolithic period, which was largely defined by humanity's construction of organized settlements, widespread adoption of agriculture and animal domestication, and large-scale pivot away from nomadic, hunter-gatherer-style ways of living. Folks at that time were also getting a lot of mileage out of early ceramic and stone tools, alongside all sorts of ornaments and artworks made of these and other materials that required skill and some level of technology to use, but which did not require metallurgy. Humans were still using a lot of stone tools during the early metallurgic periods then, too, but started to include heat-worked copper elements into their tools as well. So the Copper Age saw the development of very basic metallurgy by many interconnected groups throughout this part of the world, and though some early writers on the subject grouped the use of copper and bronze together, defining a much larger period as the Bronze Age in an undifferentiated way, Modern scholarship on the matter, beginning in the late 19th century, breaks them apart into the earlier copper and subsequent bronze ages because the manipulation and use, and often then the heavy reliance on copper, tended to segue a society eventually toward bronze, the latter being more difficult to wield and the former generally serving as a transitional sort of technology and material. And that's because copper is one of the rare metals that naturally occurs in a usable form on the surface of the planet. So folks were using copper for a variety of purposes as far back as 8000 BCE-ish, but we tend to use the smelting of copper as a delineation for the eponymous age, because that's when humans started to really work it, having become capable of building the technologies required to reach the requisite heat levels and to control the heated metal and to shape it, rather than simply finding it in its raw form and then using chunks or slivers of it for decoration or weaponry. Bronze is an alloy consisting of copper and tin, and the proper melding of these two metals in the right proportions makes the resulting substance, bronze, a lot more durable, resistant to environmental wear, and more capable of holding its shape. And that also means it's a lot more difficult to work if you want to make things out of it. But it made things like armor and sword edges dramatically more effective, which is why when civilizations learned how to work with bronze and build the infrastructure necessary to make stuff out of it on scale, they tended to do pretty well in terms of military victories and economic competition compared to their bronzeless neighbors. 
copper, though in some ways replaced by its alloys like bronze for many use cases throughout history, has continued to be incredibly useful, even necessary, for a broad range of purposes. And what I'd like to talk about today is the closure of a copper mine in Panama and the predicted global copper shortage we may soon face. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Learn more about Let's Know Things, subscribe to receive free email updates, and or become a supporter to receive monthly bonus episodes at letsknowthings.com. In the latter half of 2022, the International Copper Study Group, or ICSG, reported that they expected a copper surplus of around 155,000 tons on the global market in 2023. That would represent a small surplus as about 26 million tons of copper land on the international market each year. But a surplus of any kind would have been notable following a long period of deficits, largely due to a huge amount of growth and construction throughout China and a failure of international copper mines to produce as much marketable metal as they are theoretically capable of producing and shipping. The ICSG updated their expectation in early 2023, changing their official expected figure from a surplus of 155,000 tons to a deficit of 114,000 tons. And that's following a deficit of 431,000 tons in 2022. The upside of which is that the world has been demanding more copper than has been produced for a long while now. And while current deficits are low compared to the record high deficit of about a million tons in 2014, some prognosticators are saying we could see a deficit of somewhere between 1.5 million to 9.9 million tons by 2035, depending on how a collection of variables play out in the coming years. One major variable is how expansively and aggressively the world's governments and companies decide to invest in and deploy new renewable energy-centric technologies and their accompanying infrastructure. Copper is fundamental to the production of solar panels, electric vehicles, battery storage technologies, and even the cables that, when strung together, form our electric grids. Because of that fundamentalness, copper is generally seen as being an easy bet in terms of production investment because it's so necessary for development and growth and building things that, using existing technologies and systems and methods at least, we will probably always need more of it. And there is investment in copper projects around the world, including a slew of recent takeovers, like the April 2023 approval for BHP Group to buy Oz Minerals for nearly $6.4 billion, and the attempt by Swiss multinational Glencore to buy out Canadian-owned tech resources for around $23 billion, which failed, but that eventually led to a separate deal for Glencore to buy Tech's steelmaking-grade coal business for a measly $9 billion. So Tech held on to their copper business in that deal, but that more than $20 billion price tag gives you a sense of how big this market is and how competitive it is getting. The issue, though, is that while there is interest in this industry and a lot of growth potential more or less baked into the way the world is going, 
With so many new renewables being deployed and grid systems needing to be upgraded essentially everywhere to account for more transmission of larger volumes of electricity to more locations, there is still a lack of sufficient mined copper, in large part because growth in mining volume has sputtered. And some analysts have suggested that with copper as cheap as it is, there's less appetite to invest in that side of the industry. As of September 2023, the average price of a key grade of copper was just over $8,500 per ton, and some analysts have said the price needs to be something like $15,000 per ton, nearly double what it was in September, in order to justify the necessary investment in mining volume capacity. Thus, we are at a moment in which we are already short of copper. We are expected to globally need a lot more of it very soon, but the price is not high enough to justify expanding raw material output, and that means we could run up against a shortage before the price reaches the point it needs to be at, which may then compound the issue for several years, until that new capacity can be built out and come online. At which point, we may be way behind on this transition, but also possibly hurting across other industries and endeavors as well, like making repairs to infrastructure, building new buildings, and even expanding access to fundamental services like telecommunications and making devices like phones, because all of these things require a substantial amount of copper, which could become quite expensive for a while if a balance is not established soon. That potential for a global shortage and concomitant price increase spiral is part of why news out of Panama regarding a copper mine called the Cobre Mine is so unwelcome to many market watchers. The Cobre Mine, located about 75 miles or 120 kilometers west of Panama City and just shy of the Caribbean coast, is a huge open pit copper mine that spans about 53 square miles or around 138 square kilometers and according to many environmentalists it is severely damaging to local ecosystems including the jungle area where it's located and it substantially depletes local water supplies the mine also accounts for one percent of global copper output somewhere between three and a half and five percent of panama's total gdp and employs something like 8,000 people directly and tens of thousands more indirectly. A Canadian company called First Quantum bought the land in 2013, started building on it in 2014, and then began operation of the mine in 2019. A concession for the land had been granted to another company by the government, and that concession was confirmed with the passing of a law in 1997. A lawsuit was brought to the country's Supreme Court in 2009, the idea being that the concession was illegal because there had not been a public tender on the matter, no bidding process, basically, so the concession should be deemed illegal as the process of granting it was possibly corrupt. In 2017, the Supreme Court agreed with that claim, but in 2019, when the government attempted unsuccessfully to basically just give a new concession similar to the old one to make the mine and the company operating it legitimate in the eyes of the law unilaterally, First Quantum was just beginning to make its first shipments of copper from the mine. And in 2021, when negotiations had finally started up for a new contract, since that 2019 attempt didn't work, the mine was already nearly at full production strength. So the realities on the ground, because the company had been allowed to move forward during all of this legal wrangling, 
it became trickier and trickier because not only was this company nearing full operational capacity, it was bringing in money for the government. It was employing gobs of people and it had pretty firmly rooted itself in the region to the chagrin of many, but also to the benefit of many because of all that money and employment. The mine ended up closing for about two weeks in late 2022, leading up to a decision by the Panamanian Congress, which in October of 2023 approved a new bill that, like the old bill that was declared unconstitutional, would allow First Quantum to keep mining copper in the area, despite the environmental issues inherent in the work they had been doing there and the alleged corruption and non-constitutionality of the process that granted them the mineral rights in the first place. A wave of protesters surged into the streets across the country, blocking roads and shipments and the conduct of normal business. And while there were a few skirmishes where police hit protesters with tear gas, these protests remained mostly peaceful. Protesters said they didn't think it was constitutional to approve the mine the way the government had done, and that it seemed as if the president was secretively pushing something that he wanted to get done to make legal, despite the contract, like its predecessor, not being valid. Then in the late November 2023, the Panamanian government ordered the mine closed, following the Supreme Court's final ruling that, yes, this new bill granting the mining company concessions was not legal either. We are now entering a period of uncertainty in regards to the mine's future, as there is a chance international arbiters will decide that First Quantum should receive a huge potentially in the realm of tens of billions of dollars payout for their troubles and investments, or if things were to go a different direction and they were to negotiate a new constitutionally allowable contract, allowing the mine to start back up in some capacity under their leadership, things could still be tricky for them as the mine has lost around half of its global market share since those huge protests began back in October. There's also a chance the Panamanian government could nationalize the mine or that the mine will simply close forever, though that still leaves questions about what will happen to the surrounding area, much of which has been deforested or otherwise harmed by the size and open pit nature of the mine. This issue has become a big deal in Panama as it touches on some touchy subjects like the rights of natives, like alleged corruption by politicians. It was assumed by many that the president and his government were behaving corruptly in this matter because the payout the government would receive from the Canadian mining company was considered to be quite small compared to what the company would take, but also environmentalist issues, which have become increasingly vital at a moment in which much of the wealthy world is attempting to shift their raw material production needs, especially those that come with environmental damage, overseas and some poorer nations are attempting to fight that shift, though with mixed results, as in some cases those raw materials provide them with much of their export-related wealth, as is the case in Panama, actually, where something like 80% of its exports, reportedly until recently at least, came from this mine. There are also issues of international concern here, though, because of those aforementioned global copper needs and how the surge of investment in renewables and accompanying infrastructure and technologies require a lot of raw materials like copper, but also lithium and cobalt and other such metals and elements. The conflict, then, is that there's an imbalance here, as although some nations might be able to flip the switch 
on mining some of these newly desirable materials and then sell them to wealthier nations, becoming something like the next stage of the petrostate. There are also valid concerns related to the killing off of local ecosystems and flora and fauna and the using up or polluting of local water sources used by humans in pursuit of what amounts, through the eyes of some, to a quick buck. And not necessarily, in all cases at least, a quick buck for the government, but instead just for some people working in the government. Is it worth attaining, potentially, some amount of money if you have to trade the environmental well-being of your country to do so? That is the question Panama has apparently asked itself, and it has apparently decided in favor of its environment, at this point at least. Though this is a question many other people and many other places are asking themselves right now, and their answers will further inform how this global transition plays out and what sorts of trade-offs will or will not be made in the process. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Possibility of Life, Science, Imagination, and Our Question for Kinship in the Cosmos by Jamie Green. This book is interesting in that it looks at the history of our exploration of space, looking up to the stars, wondering if we are alone in the cosmos, and how that has changed culturally and as our technologies have changed, but also how that exploration has been interwoven with our fiction, in particular our science fiction, and how that has played on our expectations and our approaches, and how the science that we've developed around it and the technologies that have allowed us to see differently and further and more broadly have then gone on to inform our fiction on the matter as well. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Possibility of Life by Jamie Green. You can subscribe to receive email updates, find show notes, and other such content, and support this show financially, receiving additional bonus episodes as a thank you at letsknowthings.com. Learn more about me and my work at colin.io. Subscribe to my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your pods, or at onesentencenews.com. And say howdy on social media. I'm at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter, and Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.